Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. Hey, well, I want to say a really big welcome to everybody that is joining us here today. If you've never been to Bright Church, so glad that you would tune in this morning. We're kicking off a brand new series today, and I'm kind of excited about it. This is a series that we do every single year, and it's called You Ask For It. And this is a great series because this gives you the opportunity to help me preach by choosing the topics that I'm going to speak on today. And so you might not be aware of this, but what we've done over the last sort of couple of months is that we put out a... Uh, 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 it was like a social media thing to everybody and said, hey, if you've got a message that you want to hear spoken about, will you just send it on in to us? And people started filling in forms. And normally what happens is, is over a couple of weeks when we have a church service as we collect them. But this time we just shut down the form after a couple of days because we had so many people that write in questions and just want to hear really interesting things. Like, for example, here's one that was really interesting. Um, Could God create a rock that even He couldn't lift? And um, boy, that is a hard question. I'm going to say yes and no, because I don't know what else to say to that. We had another person that wrote in a question and they said, hey, uh," this is a genuine question though. They said, hey, should Christians swear? And I guess I'm not going to go into all the details, but why don't we just avoid that because you're kind of representing Jesus, okay? So, so let's just avoid that if you can do it, all right? Um, but then we had all kinds of other questions. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about prayer. I'm going to talk about the Scriptures and can we really trust the Scriptures? And is what in the Bible? Is it genuine? Is it real? You know, and, and can we trust them? And so I'm going to do that one next week. I'm really excited about that. But today I'm going to do a message and I'm kind of excited that people wrote in to ask questions about it because it's a message that I've been wanting to do for a really long time. And the question was pretty simple. It was like, how do we take communion? How do we take communion? And I thought that is a great question. So today I'm going to talk to you about that. And you got to stick around for the end because I tell you, this is, I think, an incredible message as we start to really explore what it's all about. So if you're new to church and you don't really know what communion is all about, uh, sometimes it's referred to as uh, the Last Supper. Sometimes it's referred to as the Lord's Meal. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as the Eucharist. It's one of two sacraments that we have at church. So we have two things that we think are really important. One of them is baptism and the other sacrament is communion. And communion is all around this meal that Jesus had. And it's a very, very important meal. And, and so I don't know if you guys are like, you know, my family and me, or, or maybe it's just, maybe it's just something weird that Sarah and I do. Okay. But, but sometimes we remember places based on the food that we had there. Yeah. We love our food. All right. So let me give you an example. I we had this salt and pepper calamari up in Palm Cove in Cairns, you know, over 10 years ago. It was 11 years ago. And now the place and the meal is just synonymous, right? So we just think about them as the same place. Palm Cove, salt and pepper calamari. So we just loved it. And, and so we remember, we do, we remember places based on the food that we had there. Like we'll have the conversation where we'll say, hey, remember that steak in Auckland? Oh man, that was so good. Remember that steak? That was good. In fact, a couple years ago, someone gave me a voucher 
and they were very kind they were very generous and this doesn't you know this is not our lives this doesn't happen all the time but on this occasion they gave us a voucher to go to the rock pool on south bank in melbourne and so i mean i i walked in and i was already excited and if you're a vegan you'd be horrified i mean this is one of the kind of places where you start to walk in and they got like carcasses hanging in the window so for me i'm just excited if you're vegan i'm sorry about all this next part okay but we go in and we sit down and i open the menu and thank god we had a gift voucher because i looked at the price of the steaks and these steaks were like 80 dollars. and so we ordered a couple of steaks at 80 dollars a piece i know crazy expensive thank god i didn't have to pay for it so we ordered these steaks and they came and i tell you this it was the best steak I've ever had in my whole life. And I would love to go back there and have another steak, all right? So, so we remember places based on meals sometimes, all right? Now, this meal uh, that, that the Lord had, this meal that Jesus had was a really important meal. Communion is part of a meal. And I don't know if you've seen this before, but most people I know, they would have seen this painting that Leonardo da Vinci did where it's, it's, it's called The Last Supper and you know the one I'm talking about. I mean, you've got Jesus sitting in the middle and then you've got the disciples sitting on His left and sitting on His right, you know. And, and so this meal happened in this painting. This is the one that Leonardo da Vinci painted about. And here they are sitting around and this is actually the night before what we call Passover. And it's really easy to confuse the two and think that, hey, this was the Passover meal, but this is actually the night before the Passover. And if you don't know what Passover means, especially if you're new to church and you're like, I don't even know what that is, right? Well, it's this thing that happened many, many, many years earlier. And if you don't know the story, Egypt had enslaved Israel and they were slaves for about 400 years. And so God comes to rescue Israel from Egypt through the prophet Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh. And if you've seen maybe the movie with Yul Brenner, and what does he say? Let my people go. And, and, and you know, Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so God starts sending plagues to basically say, you got to let them go or it's going to get worse. And the whole thing kind of escalates. And there's this very sad part of the story where Moses says, listen, if you don't go, there's one final plague. It was the 10th plague and it was pretty serious. And what happened is God sent the angel of death into Egypt and it would take the life of every firstborn child in Egypt. And so what God says to the Hebrews, the Israelites, He says to them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some blood of the lamb and I want you to paint it over the doorposts of your house. Now, when the angel of death comes through, not a demon sent by God, when the angel of death comes comes through. When he sees the blood of the lamb, he will pass over your house and he will go on into the next house. But any house that didn't have the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost, then the angel of death would go in and take the life of that firstborn child. Now, if you're a little bit theologically astute and you've heard that message and you're like, oh, I get it, it's quite symbolic. Like the reason for the, the, the blood being painted on the doorpost and the blood of the lamb is that it was a, maybe it was a sacrifice for sin. Oh no, 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 we haven't got to that part yet. I mean, God had to lead Israel out into, you know, the desert and explain to them the nature of sacrifices and all those things. And so, so this is not really meant to be a sacrifice for sin or anything like that. It's actually far more simple than that. It was kind of like you, the, the angel of death is coming through 
and the blood of the lamb was really about just getting out of the danger zone. Like it was just like kind of getting out the way. Imagine that, you know, this is a train that's on a track and it's coming. And the only way to get out the way and step out the way of this train that's coming through is to paint some of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And so that is exactly what they did. And then they celebrated this meal for 1500 years before, you know, Jesus was celebrating it with his disciples or about to celebrate it. It, it was the night before, remember. And so they've been celebrating this meal, the people of Israel, uh, celebrating it for 1500 years. And, and I love what the scriptures say about this. It says in Exodus chapter 12, that this thing that they celebrate, that this would be the beginning of months. In other words, when they commemorate this moment and they have this meal, this meal that they had would celebrate the beginning of a fresh start for all of Israel. And that it was just beautiful for them to be able to celebrate that and celebrate their freedom in this way. And so what they would do is they would celebrate this meal in homes. They would do it in their own houses. And if you were a family that didn't have another, a lot of money, you could join another family and then you guys come together and you would celebrate this Passover meal. It's, it's, it's more than just the, the blood of the lamb. It's an entire meal that's connected to it, you know? And so there's different elements of this meal and they had this bread that they called the bread of haste. And this is like the very first takeaway food in the ancient times, all right? So, so the idea of the bread of haste and the reason it was called that is because because they didn't put yeast in the bread. They didn't put yeast in it because they said, when God acts, He's gonna act so quickly and everything's gonna happen so fast, you won't have time for your bread to rise. The moment God acts, you will need to get out of Dodge. You will need to get out of Egypt and you're just gonna leave very quickly. So this is called the bread of haste. And so these elements, you know, the, the, the blood of the lamb or, or the blood and the bread, they became symbols of life. That's what both of those things are supposed to symbolize, life. And so when we read that, and we understand that background and that story to the Passover. There's all this kind of like connection to Jesus. You know, like Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Jesus is called the bread of life. And even though those two things are true, remember this, they are still not having the Passover meal at this point, right? They're getting ready. It's going to be the next day, but they haven't done it yet. Here's what Mark chapter 14, verse 22 to 25 says. As they were eating, He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body, right? Not my snack, not my mid-service snack break time slash intermission, have a little bite of something to eat in church. No, 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 this is not my snack for you. He says, this is my body for you. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I love this because they're just having a meal and Jesus takes something that is ordinary and he turns it into something extraordinary. That's what Jesus does. Jesus always does that. He takes things that are ordinary and He makes them extraordinary. He does it with things. He does it with people.
I mean, if you give your ordinary life to Jesus, He can take you on an extraordinary adventure if you give it to Him. He can do something extraordinary with your life if you give your heart and your life to Him. I love that God does this all of the time and it's the same thing with this meal that they're having. In fact, this meal that they're having, in case you don't know, is just an ordinary Jewish meal. It's very ordinary or very common for, for a Jewish meal to have wine and to have bread. That's how they would do it. And he takes this ordinary meal of wine and bread and he turns it into something that connects to the greatest message that the world has ever heard, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, it's just this message that God has to the world where he says, hey, listen, there is no amount of good things that you can ever do to earn your way into heaven. You're not gonna earn your way into my favor. In fact, I would just love to give you my grace. And you know what? If you believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, that He's paid the price for all of the mistakes that you've made, that means the penalty for every wrong thing you've ever done has already been paid. It's just, it's not even like now in the present or just the past, but it extends to the future. And so everything you're ever going to do that's wrong, Jesus will forgive you for your sins. And so then you get what we call the grace of God. And when you want to go into heaven, you're not going to get in based on your record. You get in based on Jesus's record. It's a message of reconciliation. It's an incredible message of grace. This is the gospel. And Jesus takes an ordinary Jewish meal and He turns it into something that would help them to remember the most spectacular event in human history. In fact, I don't know if you'd be aware, but this bread and this wine, they would even have this at breakfast. They would have it at breakfast. I know that. Can you believe it? Wine at breakfast, it's not even the PM. And they would have wine and breakfast. Some of you are not Christians and you're like, I could get, I could, maybe I could become a Christian. I don't know, like wine before breakfast, maybe that's your thing, I don't know. You know what's kind of funny? I'll, I'll tell you this right now. It, this wine was absolutely alcoholic because some people are gonna say, hey, I don't even know if the wine had alcohol. It's just grape juice. Oh, no, 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 no. It was wine. It had alcohol in it. In fact, Jesus's first miracle was to turn water into wine, which is kind of ironic because I feel like the church has been trying to change it back to water ever since he did it. Nope, 100% it was wine and I'm okay with that. And I'm not one of those people that wants to turn it back, if you know what I mean. So we come to communion and what is it? Well, Communion is a meal that people would share. And it was this meal that would remind us, that would remind them that we're all equal. That every single one of us, we all need the grace of God. That's what the meal is supposed to remind us of. And so the church is meant to celebrate this meal until Jesus comes back. And it says that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, listen to what it says. They devoted themselves, being the church, Christian people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so this is something the Christian people do. I mean, if you're not a Christian, I honestly don't even know why you do it. 
But this is something that Christian people do because they remember what Jesus did. They remember the elements that, that are symbolic of, of the new covenant, the new agreement that we have with God, that, that agreement that is an agreement of grace that we can get into a relationship with God and get into heaven based on the grace of God and never on our own merits, you know. And when it comes to communion, I can tell you this, the Bible says nothing about who should lead communion. You know, I've had people from different backgrounds, church backgrounds come to me and say things like, hey, hey, you're the only one that should be allowed to lead communion. Oh, that's nice, but it's actually just not what the Bible says. No, no, the Bible says nothing about who should lead communion. I know that it's done differently and maybe in different churches, but there's a reason for that. In fact, in the third century Gnostics started to add all this mysticism to communion. And, and, and really that continued all the way through until the 16th century when the reformers said, nope, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says nothing about who can lead communion. So here's what you can do. If you want to, you can lead communion. You could do it in your house. You could do it by yourself. You could do it by your family. You can have communion. I mean, I don't really care what you do it with. You can have it with the crust of a pizza and some Coke if you really want. I don't know. It's all symbolic, whatever you want to do, right? But you can have communion. You're allowed to lead communion. There's no problem with that. And then the Bible after this moment, really says nothing after Acts 2.42, really says nothing about communion or, or, or the fact that we're supposed to take it up until there is this group of people called the Corinthians who are messing the whole thing up. And Paul writes this letter to them and thank God they were messing it up because we learn a lot more about communion because of what Paul says in this letter to them. And he writes this letter to them because they are more confused than a termite in a yo-yo. I mean, they have no idea what they're doing and they don't understand how they're messing the whole thing up. And so Paul writes this letter because, you know, this is a church that he planted, right? He knows these people and you know, people had written letters to him and let him know about everything wrong that was happening in Corinth. And so this letter is a response to the letters that had been sent to Paul. And he's like, man, I, I'm just gonna have to set you straight on this whole thing called the Lord's Supper so you don't keep messing it up. I wanna give you the context for Corinth because, you know, if you don't get this context, then the truth is you may miss a lot about what was really going on here. So Corinth was this incredibly wealthy city. It was a wealthy city and, and, and people uh, really cared about what other people thought of them, right? It was really important how people viewed you. And the way that you would level up in society is you could host these huge dinner parties and you'd have these huge parties and people would come and feast. In fact, they, they constructed huge and elaborate halls where they would sacrifice meat to false gods, which we would call demons, and people would come and it was a huge party. There was drinking and eating and it was massive. And so this was really important. And if you were able to host a huge party and invite the very important people in culture and society and those people were there and they were present at your meal and they were eating the food and they were sitting at this meal, right? Then you would just go up in the eyes of everyone else. You know, your social status would begin to, to increase. And so people were getting drunk at these parties and it was, to be honest, was, they were raging, okay? So these parties were kind of getting out of control in these elaborate halls. And this whole thing started to influence what was happening 
in the homes of people. And so it started to influence what was happening in their house. And so people would host dinner parties at their houses that were not, obviously not as big as the huge elaborate halls that they created, uh, but they would host, you know, meals at their home. And the way that a meal would work is that, you know, everyone would come and they'd have these meals and then they would dismiss the women and the children. They would go off. And that's when the party really started to get crazy. It was kind of like a boys club, you know, it was a men's club and, and all the women and the children were gone. And then they decided, you know what, let's let this party go to a whole nother level. So they would spice it up. Now, how do you spice up the party? Well, obviously you could have drinking, like, you know, heavy drinking. They, they said, hey, let's, let's have that. And then they would have girls that were playing flutes, you know, and, and they'd listen to music and, 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 you know, they would occasionally, and not every time, but quite often invite prostitutes to these meals to just, you know, kind of spice up the party just a little bit. And they would invite great orators, people that could speak well, and they would invite them to come into their homes and to speak. I mean, come on, guys, there's no Netflix, there's no Disney Plus, there's no Stan, there's none of this. So instead of watching Netflix, here's what they're watching, people uh, that, that could speak and, and give different ideas on philosophy and history. And this was the entertainment that they had. So in the middle of all of this, you know, Paul plants a church. And when he plants the church in this culture, they kind of looked at everything that was going on and they said, we're going to celebrate communion. And then, you know, maybe they were just trying to be productive or something, but they looked at communion and they looked at their dinner parties and they said, hey, why don't we just combine the two? Let's just save some time here. I mean, it's kind of the same thing anyway. Let's make communion and the dinner parties the same kind of event. Now, this did not go well with Paul. In fact, he writes this letter to them and in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. That's because Paul had already received letters from people and that's why he's writing this in response. He says, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. He's like, what? Are you serious? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then Paul explains what communion is to them again, because they just really don't get it. Now this happened, you know, 2000 years ago. But what's interesting to me is how similar people are still today. Like human beings, like we love to put stuff in categories, not just stuff. We love to put people in categories. We, we, we love categories. It's like how we arrange culture and how we arrange things in our minds. We've always done this and that's exactly what they were doing here. 
It's so common for people to try to figure out where they fit. You know, where, where do they fit? In which group? Which classification? What kind of person are they? And, and we just put people in categories too easy. You know, like even in, even in primary school, there would be probably very specific groups of friends that you would hang out with. And there was almost like, even in primary school, sometimes there's like this us and them mentality. Like you could play with us, but maybe not with them. And oh man, it gets to a whole nother level. Maybe just a little bit more organized in high school. By the time you get to high school, with no official label, there's an A group, a B group, a C group, and then, I don't know, a bunch of stragglers or something, you know. But, but anyway, there's these very kind of specific groups. Now, nobody said that there was an A group, but everyone knows who's in the A group, and they hang together. And, and I don't know exactly what gets you into the A group, but there are very specific categories. And so, some of you are in high school and you thought, oh man, I, I just can't wait till, till school is over and this category and this system of class is all done and it's over. It'd be so great to get into the workforce where everything's normal. Oh my gosh. Nope. You get into the workforce, it's exactly the same. No one said it, but there's A group, maybe a B group, C group. People just never stop organizing class and society. And, and you know, there are, I guess there are different things that get you into different classes. And maybe it's, you know, the amount of money that you've got, like your wealth, or, or maybe it's how you dress, or maybe it's how you speak, or maybe it's who you're related to, or what your connections are, you know. But however it is, people have always been enamored with this issue of class. Now, some people don't care, but there are others that care so much about what I'm talking about. And because they care so much, they, they want to climb what we call the social ladder. You know, climb from one class up into the next class. You know, and I don't know what would get you there. Maybe for you, it's like, well, if I really suck up to my boss and they really like me and maybe, you know, I get a promotion and then I've got more money and then I have a better class. Like, I, I don't know how it works in people's heads. I just know that it absolutely does. Maybe for some people, the way that they, they get into the next class is that they're just more popular, you know? And, and I don't know how you judge popularity today. Maybe it's your Instagram account, you know? And, and you put up a post and you, you know, you've got so many likes. And I mean, gosh, to have that many likes, you must be a popular person. So then what happens to you? Oh, well, you care a lot about how much people like your posts. And that's why every notification that you get after you've put up a post, you're checking it, how many people have liked it, who's made a comment, what have they said? And you know, you're trying to move up a class, but the sad thing is, is if you live like this, you become such an insecure person. In fact, psychologists say this, they say that the more social climbing that you do, the more insecure you are. And here is the amazing thing about all of this. If you had any spiritual insight, like any spiritual insight. And you are looking up the classes of people and whose opinion really matters and, and who's the people that you should impress. You'd see right beyond that A group or whatever is important to you, the upper echelons of society. Surely, if you had any spiritual insight, you'd look past all of those classes and at the absolute top of the ladder, you'd find Jesus. Come on, you'd find Jesus, wouldn't you? You must find Jesus. I mean, people are just people, but this is God. I mean, God that 
created everything. God that spoke and the universe was breathed out and the stars flung into the universe. Like surely God's opinion would matter most. Like, like people are like the grass. They, they, they grow and then they wither and die. And, 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 you know, at best we live for like, what, a hundred years. But the eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one that made you, that knows everything about you, that knows everything about everything is everywhere. And all at the same time is completely all powerful, completely sovereign. I mean, wow. Shouldn't that person's opinion matter most to you? I think so. And here's the crazy part rather than waiting at the top of the ladder for you to reach to Him. He climbs all the way down the ladder to reach you. He's the person that, that you don't have to climb to get to. You know, I, I love the story of Jesus. I love reading about Jesus because whenever you read about Him, you see the kind of people that he, hang, he would hang out with. He wasn't about trying to impress the upper echelons of society. He wasn't trying to go to all the rich people and be one thing to them and another thing. He wasn't trying to climb from one class to another. Oh man, he was so secure. He had his own class, like God's status class. Like, you know, and, and I love who God would hang out with, right? Because in case you haven't made the connection, Jesus is God, fully God, fully man, all at the same time, 200%, the divine and the human all wrapped up together in one. And I, I love that God Himself would not hang out with the, upper echelons of society, but he'd come. And who did he hang out with? He hung out with the poor. He hung out with the weak. He hung out with the prostitutes and the people that really needed him because he said, I didn't come to save those who thought they didn't need me. I came to save those who are in need of a doctor and I've come to help them. I love Jesus. He's so good. And he's the one person that you have to give up impressing in order to get him into your life. That's where you come to him and you say, you know what, I just need you. I know I can't impress you with all the things that I do and, and the wealth that I've got, but you know what I want is I just want you. And so surely if you were seeing this clearly, you would, you would see Jesus at the top, right? I kind of feel like if you did that, you would become an incredibly secure person because now all the other opinions don't matter to you. The Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter to the Corinthians because they're not thinking like that at all. Everything I just said is the problem that's happening in Corinth. People trying to climb from one class into another. Social climbing is impacting the church. And Paul, he writes this in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you, now listen to this. This is incredibly important. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Died? Weak? And ill? Wait just a minute. This is really interesting who Paul is writing to. Because he's not actually writing to non-Christians. He's writing to Christians. So it's not the non-Christians that are unworthy. It's the 
seemingly, at least on the outside, maybe they became religious and they were just trying to dress it up. I don't know, but it, seemingly he is addressing the Christian people who are the ones that have become unworthy. And I read this and I think this is kind of crazy. What? I mean, this must be one of the only scriptures in all of the Bible that points to the wrath of God in an active way against Christian people. Wait a minute. There is, there is really no other scripture in the New Testament. Are we saved by grace through faith in Christ? If, if, if grace is how we get into a relationship with Jesus and, 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 and the covenant of grace is such that we're forgiven for all of our sins, past, present and future, how could anyone have this situation unfolding in their culture and their community? That's why you're sick, you're dying. What? Christian, wait, wait. Christian people are sick and dying because of what? Because they're not discerning the body. This, this is crazy. Like what? Over communion? Makes you think, here's the problem. Some people, they just want it all. Some people, they want it all. Christianity comes to town and they say, hey, that's good. I'll have that. Jesus, forgiveness of the sins. I, I'll, I'll take some of that. I, I'd love to have salvation. Grace, yeah, I'll have some grace. And if it's not too much trouble, if we could just have a little bit of Holy Spirit. Come on, throw that in too. Let's, let's have all of that. So they want the new covenant. They want forgiveness. They want grace. They want salvation. They want the presence of the Spirit in their life. They're just not willing to change their life at all. They want everything they can have in Christ, but they don't want to change anything that they've been doing in their lives. I don't know if you've ever met someone like that that made a decision to follow Jesus, but they didn't give up anything that they were doing. Their life exhibited no change. There's no transformation. You know, they, they kept going out. They kept doing the things that they were doing before. They just wanted Jesus too. <laughs> and if you think for a minute that I'm getting uh, judgmental, I'm just really talking about myself now. I mean, this is my story. I mean, I remember going to church, having an encounter with God and realizing that God was real and giving my heart and my life to Him. But for 12 months, I mean, I didn't change my life. I would go out, This I'm not even joking about this now. I would go out to like, you know, the club or whatever it was. I would come to church sometimes directly from the club by taxi to sit in church and I got there late. So, you know, for me, like, I, I, I'm not going to judge anyone. And this is, this is my life. This is what I did. But I tell you what, I didn't stay there. No one's supposed to stay there. If you read this and you see what the Corinthians were doing and what they wanted, they, they wanted to host potluck dinners. Come on, let's get together. Let's have this meal. Let's get drunk and let's divide up the poor people from the rich people and let's give the rich people the best seats and, 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 and let's invite Christian speakers. And oh yeah, can we still go to the pagan temples? And if it's all right, just, you know, worship the false gods. And if it's okay, just see some prostitutes on the side too. I mean, do we have to give up all of this to become Christians? Can't we just add Christianity to our lives? We, want, we just want to add Him in. See, I think that that's probably the, the likely reason that maybe some of them were sick. And this makes more sense to me as I read it, is that maybe they were not, maybe they were not actually Christians. 
It looked like it. There's no repentance in their heart, which by the way, just means to change the direction of your life. So when you become a Christian, you're supposed to do that. There's no change in direction in their life, no real commitment to God or to Jesus or nothing genuine that's happening in their heart. Just, just look at this. There were, there were likely at this time, which is why Paul writes this, a lot of different trades. You know, we know that they had a, a tent making trade in Corinth and they had leather working trade in Corinth. And, and those trades would often work and to avoid the heat of the day, they would often work around the peak temperatures, you know? So they would finish work later than the wealthier people that were maybe able to work inside. And so what was happening is, is is that the rich people were arriving at these meals early and the working class people, they were arriving at the meals just a little bit late. And by the time they got to the meals, the rich people had already been seated. They had the best seats at these tables. When the food came out, they brought it out early and the rich people got to eat all of the food. And by the time the tradies arrived, all the good food was gone and they had to eat the scraps of what was left behind. And some of them would bring their own meals and they would do these huge feasts. And at one end of the table, you've got people that are eating and they're stuffed full. And at the other end of the table, you've got people that are poor, that have got nothing and it's happening in the same room and it's insane. You know, the ironic thing about all of this is that they actually referred to these meals as love feasts. Are you kidding me? Love feasts? No love here. This, this is inequality. This is class, this is wrong, this is selfish. And Paul the Apostle said, no way. I'm not gonna commend you in this. You, you think I'm gonna say that everything you're doing right now is okay? This is not okay. And that's why Paul says, hey, you need to discern the body because what's the body? It's the church. Can you not discern the church? Can you not see what's going on around you? Can you not open your eyes and see the class of people? They're your Christian brothers and sisters. And some of you are rich and you're wealthy and you're doing great. And at the other end of the scale, some of your Christian brothers and sisters, they're poor, they're needy, they have nothing. Gosh, open your eyes. See the inequality that's happening within the body of Christ, within the church. Can you not do something about this? See, when you, when you decide to follow Jesus, you got to leave your old life behind. You got to forget about the classes and what was important to you. And you kind of take on a completely new set of ideas and values and principles. Here's what you need to know. The Gospel is the leveler, the great leveler of the human race. It tells us that all of us have failed. We all need the same grace. We can't divide people up into categories. And you know, what are we gonna say? Come on, let's be honest for just a moment. What, what are we gonna say? Some of us are doing better than others. Some of us are more well-behaved than others. Some of us are more spiritually mature than others. Okay, fine, but, but would we divide them up into class? And would anyone think that they're better than another person or they're more valuable to, to, to God because they act better or they're more sanctified? I mean, really, is, is that what we're doing here? Is that the way it's supposed to work? I don't think so. Imagine this for a minute. You and me, we're, we're, we're dropped in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. 
and I'm bragging about how I'm a better swimmer. Who cares? We're both going to die because even if I get a couple of meters further, we are absolutely hopelessly drowning. And that is a picture of reality for the human race. We are all hopelessly drowning in our sin and we are only saved by the grace of God who reaches down, who came down that ladder and said, hey, I'm going to help you. I'm going to pay the penalty that you are supposed to pay so you can have my grace and you can come into relationship with me. And it's everything because of what Jesus did and nothing to do with what we did. Come on. It's not okay to segregate people and value people based on the call that God places on their life. I mean, some people have things that they're gonna do that looks more remarkable. But if we understand anything that Paul says in the Scriptures, and you could read this later on. He says, everyone has a place and everyone has a purpose and every single person has value. You cannot love people and treat them like a second class citizen. That's, that's not love. Come on, that's not love. Jesus, the gospel, this is the most inclusive message you'll ever hear in your life. Jesus came for the broken. Jesus came for the needy. Jesus came for those who were rich, but Jesus also came for those that were poor. Jesus came for people no matter what class they were in. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your portfolio is. It doesn't matter the car you drive, the house you live in, your demographics, none of that matters. He says, I just came for you. We are all equally in need of the same grace, educated, uneducated, it doesn't matter. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. I remember years ago, my son Isaac, I'm bringing this up like it's past tense. I was, you know what I was gonna say? I was gonna say, he used to wake up early. My gosh, he still does. <laughs> he gets up early in the morning. Doesn't matter what time he goes to bed. I mean, 6 a.m., 5.30 a.m., there he is, he's up. He's just awake, he's just one of those kids. <laughs> doesn't appear to need much sleep. And so we were like, oh, we should, you know, we should check this out because we think he needs a bit more sleep. So we booked him into this sleep study and it was kind of crazy. Like we went into, you know, Monash Hospital and, you know, they hooked him all up with wires all over his body. It's really weird actually. And then they make him sleep in a little room and they monitor him. And I had to stay there overnight. So what happens is the kids go into a room and the parents go out to another room because there's multiple kids there, multiple rooms and, and all the parents are in another room. And so we're waiting for our kids to kind of drift off to sleep while we're having these chats. And I'm chatting to this lady and, um, you know, I. You know, I have a high word count, all right? So I like to talk to people and, you know, I, I just introduced myself and I said, hello, and I was asking her about her life. And I said, you know, tell me about your family and your kids. And I said, hey, hey, so what do you do for work? And she told me this story and, and she told me about the place where she works. Now, I didn't flinch because I didn't really know the name of the place. I didn't recognize it at all. And we, we just kind of kept talking about family and stuff. And I said, after a while, so I don't really know what that place where you said you work, I don't really know what they do. What kind of a business is it? And she says, oh, it's actually a, a brothel. And I said, oh, okay. 
Now, this is kind of dangerous because I still want to be interested, but not too interested, if you know what I mean. I mean, I'm trying, I want to ask questions, right? But not too many questions, if you know what I mean. So, so you try to have a conversation where you're navigating that minefield, right? So anyway, here I am and I, and I say, oh, okay. I said, well, okay. You know, is, uh, what's the culture of the place like? I mean, is, is it a difficult place to work? Do you enjoy working there? And she told me what her job was. She said that she had more of, you know, administrative role. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And then at the end of talking all about her, she decides to ask me a question. She says, hey, so what do you do for, for, for work? And I said, oh, I said, I, I am a pastor of a church. And man, what a conversation killer that is. I mean, the moment that I said that I was a pastor for church, she went, oh my gosh, she, she gasped. She put her hand over her mouth. She actually stepped back and she put her head into her hands. And she said to me, and I don't forget it. She said, you must think the worst of me. She said, oh, I wish I had have asked you what you did before you asked me what I did. I, I probably wouldn't have told you the truth. And I said, why would you not do that? You know what she was doing in that moment? She was putting herself in a different class of people. And I said to her, you know, the truth is, is that you might think that that's how it works, but I'm not better than you. We've made different decisions and yeah, okay, there's some things that I don't do, but ultimately when we come before God, I'm not perfect. I said to her, hey, listen, I need the grace of God just as much as you need the grace of God. We, 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 we're equal in that way. We both need the grace of God. I said, and you know what, I'll tell you something else. I said, hey, you could come to my church and no one at, at Bright Church would ever make you feel like a second-class citizen. To be honest, we'd just be excited that you were there. Heck, we give you coffee just for showing up. You don't have to do anything. We give you whatever you want. We just, we're just so glad that you are interested in this message called the gospel and the grace of God. I, I would want you to know what, the, what Jesus is all about. I don't think that anyone should ever have to go to church and be made to feel like a second-class citizen just because of their history, because you have no idea what God is gonna do with someone's future. Everyone starts somewhere and they encounter the grace of God and it changes them completely. You know, when we get together in church, we don't ask you what your background is. We don't ask you a bunch of questions. And if you say that you follow Jesus, well, we say, hey, come on, like, let's do this because this is something that Christian people do or you want to know. Or, hey, come on, let's, let's have this meal. This reminder. This meal that reminds us that we're all equal that we all need the grace of God, that we all need Jesus. Let's take communion because we all need it. We need the meal that reminds us we're equal. We need the meal that reminds us that we all need the grace of God. I want to pray for anyone today who maybe you just put yourself in another class. You know, we have so many categories, believer, non-believer, secular, atheist. It doesn't really matter what category you've thought you're in up until this moment. I want to tell you right now that every single one of us, no matter who you thought you were or what your background was or hey, maybe even how you've classified yourself, we all need the grace of God. Here's the most beautiful thing. 
that if you ask for the grace of God today, He'll give it to you. You do nothing to earn it. It's just because He wants to give it to you. I would like to just lead you in a prayer. It's a really simple prayer and it's one thing. You've never given your life to Jesus, but today you want to know this God that gave everything for you. You want to be in a relationship with Him and say, I want that grace. Well, I want you to just repeat after me and I'm going to lead you in this prayer. You just say the words that I say. God will know that you mean it in your heart. You say those words and I tell you, your life will be completely different on the other side of that prayer. So come on, let's, let's you and I just pray together, all right? Let's do this. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me, that you died on the cross for my sins. I receive you today as my Lord and Savior and I choose to follow you every day for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.